We're going to read this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, but before we do that, let's read from the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 26. Lord's Day 26. And we're going to focus this morning on the institution of the sacrament of baptism. So the last question of Lord's Day 25 on page 14, question 68. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Testament, New Covenant or Testament to, namely Holy Baptism and the Lord's Supper? Question 69. How art thou admonished and assured by Holy Baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross is of real advantage to thee, thus that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto his promise, that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my sin, of my soul, that is from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. Question 70, what is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice on the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ, that so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. Question 71, where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Now we turn to the Word of God in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. We'll read the entire chapter. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow, and for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring the disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city 
and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. What is it that makes the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, what is it that makes these ceremonies so important in the life of the church that we call them sacraments? Or we could say, what is it that sets them apart as holy for the use of the church compared to other ceremonies? In the previous Lord's Day, the sacraments are, described, are, are defined this way. The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals appointed of God for this end, that by the use thereof he may the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel, namely that he grants us freely the remission of sin and life eternal for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. They are holy, visible signs that affirm to us more fully the teaching of the gospel that we are forgiven through Jesus Christ. What is it that sets these two apart? And we could ask that in contrast to some other important ceremonies which also have gospel significance. For example, marriage. And the Bible tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Why is it that marriage is not a sacrament? whereas these two are. We could ask this question from another point of view, and it's this. Why is my baptism so important? Why are the sacraments so important in my life as a Christian and a believer? And the answer to that question is in the institution, the institution by Jesus Christ of these two ceremonies as perpetual ceremonies for the church to celebrate till he comes again. That's going to be our focus this morning as we come to the sacrament of baptism. And so on account of that, I want to just say before we get into the body of the sermon, a few things about the meaning of baptism, things that ought to be clear in our minds and obvious to us whenever the sacrament of baptism is administered. There are three main things represented in the sacrament of baptism. The first and the most obvious is the washing away of sins. That's the sign of water in baptism. And the catechism makes a point of it that just as dirt is washed from our bodies, the filth of our bodies is washed by water, so 
Our sins are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the washing not only of justification so that we are declared righteous and free from all the guilt of our sin, but it's also the washing of sanctification in which we are more and more made pure and holy and continually worked in by the Holy Spirit to be more holy. So first, baptism is a sign of washing, but then sacrament. second, baptism is a sign of union, and it's especially a sign of our corporate union to Jesus Christ, our head. And so the Scriptures say we are baptized by one Spirit into one body, and that is into Jesus Christ and His body. What Jesus Christ then has done as our mediator and Savior in our flesh, He has done for all those who are united to him. And baptism is a sign of our union to him in his saving work. And then third, baptism is a sign of regeneration. This is a sacrament that represents our spiritual resurrection. We are raised with him through baptism into newness of life. It's a sign of renewal. And it's a sign even of the resurrection itself. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. So those are the three main things that baptism teaches us. We are washed of our sins. We are united to Jesus Christ in his saving work. And we are new creatures in him. But as I said this morning, we want to look at the institution of baptism And that'll be our theme, the institution of baptism. We want to notice first the significant event, then second, the important words, and then third, the obvious calling. And what we're really focusing in on this morning is the part of the Great Commission in which Jesus institutes baptism, and then the connection of that to the rest of what Jesus teaches in the Great Commission here in Matthew 28. So we have in Matthew 28, verse 19, the words of institution when Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Jesus institutes baptism. That's parallel to the passages in which he institutes the Lord's Supper, and especially in 1 Corinthians 11. These words of Jesus set aside this important ceremony of baptism as something to be celebrated by the church as a sacrament repeatedly until Jesus comes again. These are set aside by the church for believers and their children. We're going to come back next week to the question of children and the baptism of children. But what we want to see this morning is the significant event that's recorded here in Matthew chapter 28. There's an importance to the institution of baptism. And that comes out here in this gospel account. First of all, Matthew, as he closes his gospel account after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, closes with this one final post-resurrection event. This is the one we could say that Matthew chooses because it is the most important of all the events following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his work on earth in our flesh as mediator is complete. His suffering for sin and his resurrection from the grave accomplish our salvation. 
And now Jesus is going to leave his disciples and the church in the world, and he's going to give them the Holy Spirit so that his work is continued through them. And this event in Matthew 28 is significant for them and for the church. Jesus does not come to them after his resurrection and speak to them of the structure of the New Testament church. That will come later in the book of Acts. He doesn't come to them now and teach them about eschatology and when he will return. But he comes to them and talks to them about this, the preaching of the gospel and the sacrament of baptism. And he institutes baptism in connection with the Great Commission. And as we look at this passage, we see that Jesus emphasizes the importance of baptism with this little word, all. Notice four times he uses that word here. First, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Then, go ye and teach all nations, baptizing them. And then, verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then, lo, I am with you always, or through all time, until the end of the world. And of course, there he's speaking of everything that the church must be busy with from the time of his ascension till he comes again. And that is bringing the word of God in all its fullness to all the nations of the earth. And he will always be with them as they do this. So we see here the, the importance from Matthew's gospel of this institution, this event. We also see the importance of it here in this passage in that Jesus arranged this meeting with his disciples and that at this meeting all 11 of the remaining disciples or apostles are present. That comes out in the chapter here, but we can turn back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 26, verse 32, and see that Jesus makes this appointment with his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 32, he says in verse 31, You shall all be offended of me because of me this night. And then verse 32, But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And now when the women come to the tomb of Jesus, this is what they are reminded of, and they are told to remind the disciples of. So here in verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. And again in verse 10, Jesus himself meets them on the road, and he says, Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. And so we read in verse 16 that the eleven disciples, in obedience to Jesus Christ, went into Galilee. Jesus made this appointment with them. And it's interesting that this appearance that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew is not the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus ascended in Judea. This is the one event that Matthew records after the resurrection of Jesus Christ because this is the central event in which Jesus gives the sacrament of baptism. And he had this in mind already before his death, so he appointed to meet the eleven. Not two, not one, not five, not seven, but all of them. And in this meeting, with all of them as representatives of the New Testament church, he gives them this important ceremony and sacrament. 
It's also significant, and this is in contrast to the Lord's Supper, that Jesus institutes baptism after his resurrection from the dead. And there is a a difference, really, in what's represented in the two sacraments. You know that in the breaking of bread and the pouring out of wine, we have a symbol of the death of Jesus Christ and the suffering of Jesus Christ. There's certainly in that life, because we partake of that, and that is Jesus Christ, the bread of life, and that looks forward to the great marriage supper of the Lamb and life eternal and being sustained by the grace and the life that is in Jesus Christ. But in the sacrament of baptism, we are more closely tied to the final part of Jesus' saving work here on earth, and that is his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 6 makes that connection when it says that in baptism we are risen with him into newness of life. And that's because baptism is a sign of our spiritual union to Christ in his saving work. That begins in his incarnation and birth, all of his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And in all that saving work we are united to Jesus Christ and in the sacrament of baptism in which we Remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are partakers of the new life that is in him. And so the good news that Jesus speaks of preaching here, go ye therefore and teach all nations. As we see the disciples carrying out this work, this is what they preach. What did Peter preach on the day of Pentecost? Psalm 16. Thou wilt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. What did Paul preach? 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The gospel that I preached to you was not only the death, but also the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. And this is the great good news of the gospel that is proclaimed, the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he's risen according to the Scriptures. And baptism is a symbol of resurrection, and our new life comes after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Another significant thing in this chapter about the institution of baptism is that Jesus does this on a mountain in Galilee. All through the scriptures, mountaintops are significant. Think, for example, of Mount Sinai where the law was given and the covenant with Moses. Think of Moses going up in the mountain to meet with God. Think of Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel. And there, the sacrifice and the great proclamation, Jehovah, he is the God. Jehovah, he is the God. Think of Mount Zion in Jerusalem and the place where the temple was built there. Or think of all the significance of mountains, even in the life and the ministry of Jesus, the sermon on the mountain. He went into a mountain to pray. There was the Mount of Transfiguration. And then there was an ascension, his ascension from the Mount, Mount of Olives. And the mountaintop symbolizes two things. One is solitude or separation from the busyness of man's life in this world. And the other is, in a symbolic way, proximity to God. Not in actuality, but it's represented symbolically from a mountaintop. And now Jesus takes his disciples to a mountain in Galilee. In Galilee. Why in Galilee? Well, this has to do with the Great Commission and the symbolism of baptism. 
Some think, well, it could be because Galilee is where the majority of the disciples were from, but apparently not because the majority of them were in Judea and they had to go to Galilee to meet Jesus there. Galilee was further out from Jerusalem, a place where Jews and Gentiles mixed together in society. And this location represented the gospel then going to all the nations of the earth. And so even when Jesus is born in Judea, he's moved to Nazareth to what the prophet Isaiah calls in Isaiah chapter 9, Galilee of the Gentiles. And on the great day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost is poured out, this is a part of the symbolism of the Holy Spirit that they speak in many nations, and in many tongues, and this gospel that then will go to all nations. The church becomes universal and Catholic in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and that is part of what's represented in baptism. Then there's one more important thing, and it has to do with the way that Jesus begins his words from the mountaintop. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, that is, all authority. And he's speaking here of his exalted position when he would be seated in his ascension at God's right hand. And all power, all authority in heaven and earth would be committed to him. And here we might say we have the first act of the exalted Lord, the first execution of his power, and that is the institution of baptism and the giving of the great commission. All authority, and he commands. And this command parallels the command concerning the Lord's Supper, this do in remembrance of me, as often as ye do it, you show forth the Lord's death till he come. And that's the weight of this command to the church. Throughout the ages, she must be busy not only teaching and bringing the gospel to all nations, but baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That brings us to the important words of institution. And they're there in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This is sometimes called the formula for baptism or the words that Christ has ordained or commanded to be used with the administration of baptism. As we think about these words of institution, we should think of them not just as Christ with a position of authority prescribing an ordinance or a practice for the church to continue to use till he returns, but we should think of this as the ascended Christ blessing the church, giving to us something wonderful to increase our faith, to remind us of his work and his promises and to remind us of his continual presence with us till the end of the world. That's the way we are to understand the sacraments. We speak of them as means of grace. And we speak of them as the chief, alongside preaching, the primary, the, the main means of grace, preaching and sacraments. And in giving baptism to the church, Christ is giving to us the, the tool by which he will communicate throughout the ages his grace, his covenant grace to his people. 
So this is not just a, a command to follow, but this is a gift from the ascended Christ, even prior to his ascension into heaven. Now, the first and most obvious thing about these words of institution is that they teach the doctrine of the Trinity. They are Trinitarian in their language. And when we say they are Trinitarian in their language, we mean that they speak both in the singular, that God is one, as well as in the plural, three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see those two things right here in the formula for baptism, baptizing them in the name, singular. Not the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but the name of, the singular name. And that's teaching us that God is one, that there is one true God who has revealed himself in Scripture, and that in his essence or being he is one. Deuteronomy 6, Jehovah our God is one Lord. And at the same time you see in this formula that God is three. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are baptized into the name of the one God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in baptism, there's acknowledgement of this great truth concerning God himself. A confession that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the fundamental truth of the Christian faith. If you look at church history, that becomes very obvious because this is what the church wrestled with for many centuries and it wrestled with it, especially to come to the understanding not only that God is triune, but that Jesus is divine. And that Jesus, in his coming into our flesh, remained God and man, two distinct natures in one person. So that he could, as our mediator, accomplish our salvation. And now in baptism, in our union to him, we have the assurance that his saving work is sufficient. Another important thing that we see in this baptism formula, it doesn't come out very clearly in the King James Version, but it's this, that we are baptized into the name. In the King James, we have the preposition in, but literally it's into. We are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that points to what we've already called attention to, that baptism is a sign of union of union. But now it's not a sign of our union to Jesus Christ as our head and our mediator and our being baptized into his body. Rather, it's a sign of our union and being brought into fellowship with God triune. Baptism is a sign of being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's telling us not only that we are saved, that's our union to Jesus Christ, but it's telling us what our salvation is, the essence of our salvation. And that is to be brought into covenant communion and fellowship with God triune. Isn't that the beauty of God triune? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
in perfect communion and fellowship with one another. And now in salvation we are brought into the life of God himself. In his great high priestly prayer in Matthew, in John chapter 17, this is exactly the petition that Jesus makes for his church. In John 17, uh, verse 21 and following, he says this, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us. And then he continues this way, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved me as thou loved them as thou hast loved me. And that's the idea of being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Being brought into living communion and fellowship. With God Himself, God triune. But there's something else here, and it's this that we see that the saving work of Jesus, uh, the saving work of God, or our salvation, as that's wrought by God, is the work of God triune. Or we could say this that each of the persons of the Godhead are intimately involved in the work of our salvation. We are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the baptism form teaches us this very clearly and and, and the, the way that we should think about the distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in regard to our salvation. So the baptism form says this, when we are baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesses and seals to us that he makes an eternal covenant of grace with us. And that, of course, has to do with our being chosen in eternity as the elect into that eternal, unbreakable covenant love with God. God the Father, in baptism, seals to us, promises to us, shows to us that he's brought us into that eternal covenant with himself. Then the baptism form says this, when we're baptized in the name of the Son, He promises and seals to us that we are washed from all our sins and incorporated into the fellowship of His death and resurrection. And there's our union to Jesus Christ. We're baptized into one body by one Spirit. And that means that we are, as the form continues, freed from all our sins and made righteous before God. That's the teaching of baptism to us. That's the gift that Christ gives to us as he gives us baptism. I affirm to you, I promise to you, I seal to you what the gospel teaches, that you are righteous and free from all your sin. And then when we're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, he assures us that he would dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ. Assurance and sanctification. And that sanctification is this, that he daily applies to us the washing of sins and the renewing of our lives so that he remains with us to help us to grow in sanctification and increase daily in that. And that's the sign, isn't it, of water baptism, a sign of washing 
and a sign of union and a sign of new life in Jesus Christ, baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So those are the important words here of the baptism formula and institution. Now you recognize, of course, that we use these words when we baptize in the church. And we confess as we do that, that all our salvation is in God, as well as this, that we confess that God is triune. Now it's very interesting here to to look at what constitutes true baptism, or we could say how this has been viewed historically in the Reformed churches. And you know that at the time of the Reformation, there were the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists taught that you had to be baptized again. That's the pronoun Anna, re-baptizing, or again baptizing. And they said that the baptism in the Roman Catholic Church by the Roman Catholic priest was not legitimate, was not sufficient. And the answer of the Reformers to this is that it's not really about the man who does the baptism, though it should be done by the church, and it should be done by one who's ordained, a man who's ordained into the office in the church. But what's important is these words and their authority as they come from the risen, exalted Christ. The words of the formula for baptism are the weight of baptism as they are as it's administered to the individual and so we acknowledge God triune and we baptized into communion with him as God and savior and so we recognize catholic baptism interestingly when I was pastor in Spokane, we had a man who did confession of faith, and he was previously baptized, but he was previously baptized in a branch of the Mormon church. And the Mormons deny the doctrine of the Trinity, so they're baptized only in the name of Christ. And so he was baptized when he did confession of faith. That, of course, brings us back to what I said earlier. This is the central truth of the Christian religion that we know and we confess God as God triune. Well, that brings us to the final thing I want to talk about this morning, and that is the obvious calling that baptism places on those who administer baptism, the church, as well as on those who receive baptism. That's the individual who's baptized in the church. And here, really, we're going to talk about this, this formula, this institution of baptism in connection with what Jesus says around it here in these words in Matthew 28, in connection with the words of the Great Commission. And now I want, to, I want you to see this, the three different verbs that are used in verses 19 and 20, and understand their relation to each other. So Jesus says this, and here's the primary verb in the Great Commission. Go therefore and teach all nations. 
The word for teach there means literally to disciple. Jesus is saying this is the church's duty to go and make disciples of all nations. And then the other two verbs are baptizing and teaching. In those two other verbs, Jesus is teaching or telling us how the church will make disciples of all nations. She will do that by baptizing and by teaching. And then we have to understand this as well, the connection between baptizing and teaching. They go together. And so really this sets before us the calling of the church. It is three things. One, to be busy in making disciples from all nations. Two, along with that, to baptize those who believe and their children. We'll come back to that next week. And then third, to continue beyond baptism in teaching, teaching to observe all things that I have commanded you. And I want us to think about this then, the, especially the calling to teach those who are baptized. The calling to teach those who are baptized. We understand this when we do the work of missions. The work of missions is not simply to go out and preach the gospel and the saving work of Jesus Christ initially, that is, to people who haven't heard it before, so that decisions are made for Jesus Christ. No, the work of missions goes far beyond bringing people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ initially. And we recognize that as we do the work of missions, because what do we want as we do the work of missions? We want the church to be established. We want these people who are saved and brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to find a spiritual home. Because what's baptism? It's to be baptized into the body. They need the church. And then along with that, as we do mission work, we want people to be trained to preach the gospel. And this is what we've been busy with in the Philippines, in the seminary work there, as the work, the mission work there has developed. So that we want preachers of the gospel. And you notice that order in the Great Commission. Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and then beyond that, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And that puts a a calling on the local church too, on our congregation. And it's this, to teach those who are baptized. To teach those who are baptized. That, of course, is the calling of parents who bring their children for baptism. And it's one of the vows that you make as you bring your children to baptism. That you promise to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. To give them instruction in the, we say, aforesaid doctrine. That is the truth of God's word as we teach it in this congregation. And so we make a vow to, in our home, instruct our children. We want for our children to have a solid Christian education that's founded on the word of God. And then we, in the church are busy with the catechizing of children, teaching them. And as we do that work in teaching our children, we're fulfilling this great commission to teach those who are baptized. 
But then, beyond that, the church should be busy, not just in weekly preaching, but in, we could say, practical ministries that reach into the life of the individual so that you are discipled as believers in your Christian living. That's what this is about. This is not about producing people who are intellectuals. Never does the Bible say that as Christians we have to be intellectuals. There may be intellectuals who are Christians. But notice the practical nature of the instruction that's given here, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And that's what discipling is. That's what teaching is. It's teaching God's people to see how the Word of God should impact, should relate to, should direct their lives. So that they think biblically as they live in this world. We could put it another way. The church should engage you beyond the few hours that you're here on the Lord's Day for worship. You should be engaged in the life of the church. And all of that is connected here to baptism. Because in baptism we are baptized into one body. And it's our life together as believers in the church that's an expression of that being baptized into that one body, into Jesus Christ and His body. So our spiritual life together is an expression of our fellowship, about being joined to one another in Jesus Christ. And then there's also an obvious calling here for the individual who is baptized, and it's simply this, to think biblically. To think biblically. To think thoughts after God, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Teaching is something that's brought to the mind. But as I said, it's not just an intellectual thing, but it has to do with thinking biblically with regard to your life. Baptism is a sign that you have been set apart by God as a holy people. Another calling that baptism places upon you. Not just you have made confession of faith, but boys and girls, children too. The calling is that you think biblically as you live your life in this world. That's the duty that baptism places upon us. Baptism has been called by some a uniform. It's a uniform that you wear. It sets you apart. Circumcision was something like that in the Old Testament too. It set God's people apart. These are my holy people. And so Romans 2 says that the one who's circumcised is circumcised after or in the heart. So that from the heart, we could say from the mind, he's directed by the Spirit and the Word of God. And that's the calling that baptism puts on every one of us as well as we know our baptism. That we are directed biblically in all of our thinking. 
I want to just finish the sermon this morning by saying something about the last words of Jesus here. And again, these are connected to baptism. We said that baptism is a sign of our union to Jesus Christ. And this is how Jesus finishes here. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. That's one of the promises of baptism. Because our union to Jesus Christ is unbreakable. And his presence with the church, his body and bride, which he's purchased with his blood, is permanent. And he comes to be present with the church by his Holy Spirit. And of course, that's, again, one of the aspects of the meaning of baptism. He gives us new life, and he's with us in the Spirit. And so as we celebrate baptism, as we administer baptism... We continue to do that, like the Lord's Supper, till the day that he comes again. We are reminded again and again, not only of the washing of our sins, but the presence of Jesus Christ with us till the end. And our union to him. The new life that we, that we have by the Spirit and which will bring us in the end to life eternal. Isn't that what you wait for? Amen. Father, we thank Thee for the sacrament of baptism that Jesus the Savior has given to us and the gift that it is, the rich significance of it for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we live in this world, we may be directed by the Spirit after the Word so that we think biblically as Thy people. Hear us in mercy, we pray, for Jesus' sake.